Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King Cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, I will review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. And this week, I am reviewing the conclusion to Lock. I'm sorry, to uh, Joe Hill and Gabriel Rodriguez's masterpiece, Lock and Key, with Omega and Alpha, the Omega and Alpha collection. So, um, if you are tuning in for the first time, Welcome. Um, over the last, uh, the summer project has been to make my way through Lock and Key, which is really good timing because the Netflix show will be coming out um, at some point. Don't know when exactly, but it will be coming out um, sooner rather than later. And it's good to uh, have uh, dove back into this, uh, swam around the waters uh, for a while um, and uh, splashed you guys with uh, the waters of, of this particular storyline. It's been a lot of fun, um, and I apologize for the delay in episodes. Um, I, I know that it's been uh, definitely longer than a week um, in between my, my last review and this one, um, but uh, I, I, I hope to remedy that and uh, get through this one um, so that I can clear the way for what's going to be the fall of Stephen King in which we get it Chapter two, the Institute. We have Full Throttle by Joe Hill. We have uh, Doctor Sleep by Stephen King coming out. Mike Flanagan, who uh, did The Haunting of Hill House. So there, there's this is for someone that likes fall. Uh, I I'm, I'm I, I find myself hating myself during the summer at times because. I'll have that moment where the sun is shining so brightly and it's 90 degrees and it's beautiful out. The sky is blue. The clouds are white. The sun's coming down. The grass couldn't be greener. Soft breeze is, is blowing in the wind and it's lovely. And I think, oh, you know what? I can't wait for fall. You know, like, I, but that has happened to me a couple times. And um, as much as I do love summer, and I do, uh, and as much as I'm going to miss summer when it's gone, uh, I can't lie. The thought of leaves falling and crunching beneath my feet, uh, crisp chill in the air, local fairs, uh, apple picking, chilly nights, spooky movies, uh, start you know uh, building a fire in the fireplace. These are things that I'm I'm, I'm getting excited about. So I. Uh, I'm definitely looking forward to a, a fall of, of Stephen King-related stuff. So it comes out next week, which is crazy to me. It just feels like yesterday that the the, the first movie, we were counting down until uh, Chapter 1 was coming out during that summer, in which we also saw the release of The Dark Tower. And uh, now here we are, uh, the sequel coming out. I just feel like there's not as much fanfare around the sequel as there was around the first one. Um, and I don't think that that's a sign of that anything's wrong. Um, I haven't really um, jumped into any reviews because I, I want to go in as clear as I possibly can and, and untouched by uh, other um, other thoughts and, and, and previous reviews. I, I don't really want to be influenced. But from what I've seen, uh, it's been positive. So I have no doubt. I mean, I, I trust um, Muschietti based on what uh, he gave us from the first one. Uh, and it's got a stellar cast. So I, I expect it to be, at the very least, an enjoyable experience. Uh, so um, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I just don't think that people are talking about it as much. Or maybe I'm just kind of just lost a little bit and, and, and not as, as tuned into the public discourse 
Um, but I don't know. Regardless, it doesn't matter. I'm seeing it next weekend. I cannot wait. Um, I'm seeing it where I saw it the first time. I'm going to a drive-in. It's a perfect drive-in movie. It'll be a spooky night. And we'll watch a spooky movie. And I cannot wait. So, oh, and then if you are tuning in for the first time and you're unfamiliar with the production quality of this podcast, I do apologize. This is not a professional podcast by any means. I am currently recording this from my dining room, and that clickety-clack that you're hearing is my furry co-host making her way around the room. So I do apologize. Okay, guys, so I've rambled on enough. Uh, What I'm going to do now is I'm going to get into lock and key, Omega, and Alpha. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to read uh, some some small Wikipedia summaries to, uh, um, sorry, some small Wikipedia uh, summaries of each issue, and they're really short before getting into my my own reviews. So Omega issue number one, Wiki. Scott videotapes a lot of students for a documentary about things they wish they could tell their younger selves. Meanwhile, the Dodge-possessed Bodhi uses the giant key to find the shadow key, which Tyler hid in the crown of shadows. By using the shadows, he is able to get past the security system, which should prevent living people from draining the caves. Later, he hides the old body of Lucas Caravaggio and recovers the black door. So um, my thoughts on it. Uh, This is the beginning of the end, and all of the threads are leading to an approaching conclusion. Dodge acquires the crown of shadows, which Tyler had placed on top of the lighthouse while maintaining giant form. Bodhi is seen, and the next day, the wreckage of the lighthouse is discovered in the bay. Uh, And it's just little little things like this that... um, that, that really embrace the, the fantastical qualities of of this story that, that make it such that it works better in a comic book than it would as a uh, novel, I feel. Um, so much of Joe Hill's sensibilities are, are very visual, very fantastic, um, that I, I do believe he is a perfect fit for the comic book medium and his collaboration with Gabriel Rodriguez here uh, Gabriel is able to, they just have that, there is a, a synergy with really strong collaborators that, 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 that make um, the, the story really, really come alive, whether it be Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo, right? So those are two, uh, two um, comic book creators that have worked on, um, on Batman together for a number of years and they work really really well you know they, they could finish each other's sandwiches and that is not a frozen reference ladies and gentlemen and I will fight anyone that says otherwise I am not a huge fan of frozen my daughter it was it came out before my daughter was born so I'm not influenced by by that the way that I am Moana though Moana is just a dope movie that is a great movie it makes me cry every time that grandma scene is so gut-wrenching. Anyway, um, what was I saying? Oh, yeah. Um, finish each other's sandwiches. That is just a blatant, blatant ripoff of Arrested Development. And I really don't like Frozen for that. You know, the, the, the blues have suffered enough indignities I don't feel as though the Disney studio stealing from them is one that they should have to endure without someone fighting on behalf on their behalf. So I'm fighting on behalf of the Bluths and Mitch Hurwitz and Arrested Development. That is an Arrested Development joke, ladies and gentlemen, not a Frozen joke. But 
back to creators and collaborators. Uh, so Gabriel Rodriguez and Joe Hill, clearly, but others are um, Steve Dillon, Garth Ennis. They worked incredibly well together. Um, Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons, um, who, who did Watchmen. Um, and I know that there are many that I'm just really blanking on oh uh grant morrison and frank quietly and um oh um claremont and Byrne and uh, lee and ditko though their their relationship was was fraught uh um jeff Loeb and tim sale <sighs> I, I just feel like there's one that that i'm really really uh not there's one that i'm missing oh uh, Tom King and Mitch Gerads. I don't know if that, that's how you pronounce his last name, but that, that's that's a more recent collaboration. Um, but those two working together, something special comes out of that. Um, I don't really have much of a vehicle to talk too much about my comic book interests, but I will say that Tom King is is probably the most special comic book writer working in the industry today. Uh, which isn't which isn't to say that you know others aren't doing great works because you know they are when you have uh, Jason Aaron uh, out there when you have Grant Morrison um, when you have um, uh, Jonathan Hickman when you have Brian Michael Bendis when you have you know the great writers out there that's yes um, Scott Snyder like I said um, you you do have uh, titans in the industry working right now but i'm telling you scott snyder though he has dealt with thematic similarities across uh his books um no two books truly have ever been the same um and his his uh his ability to vary his his stories uh, and, and strike different tones is, is truly spectacular. And there is a weight and an understanding to the characters. Um, he can go big, he can go large, uh, and he can go incredibly personal and intimate. No one writes a relationship book quite the way that he does. I would love for him to get over to Marvel where he could do uh, Spider-Man and Mary Jane. Because if you have read his... Uh, his Mr. Miracle, the the Scott Free and Barda relationship is one thousand uh, percent on the money. He's really really good at it, and so I would like to see. And uh, obviously, right now with what he's been doing with Batman, so much of it has focused around the the relationship between uh bruce and selena so he knows how to write relationships there is it's grounded in emotion though you know he he can do a story about gods he can do a story about uh intergalactic strife which is just a metaphor for our relations um with the middle east um not so subtly but done so well if you if you need to read something like that read omega men it's fantastic uh, he can do um, something that is just grounded in our reality. Sheriff of Babylon, somewhat based on his life experience. The man was a CIA agent before he became a comic book writer. Who makes that jump? But this isn't the Tom King cast. This is the, uh, the, the Stephen King cast. Uh, so let me get back to that. But like I said, comic book collaborators. 
Joe Hill and Gabriel Rodriguez, they have it. And so when you see that lighthouse crumbled in the ocean, um, that to me is just a signifier of how well these two work together. Uh, so Kavanaugh, meanwhile, has begun to record testimonials from the seniors. And in Tyler's, we learn of the fight that he had had with his father that led to his father's death. Rendell has blamed Tyler for not being more responsible when watching over his sister. And after canceling his vacation, this is when Sam Lesser catches Tyler on the steps. As Dodge drains the caves, Duncan and Tyler go to work at forging something from the whispering iron. While we head towards our conclusion, our characters begin to heal, with Kinsey admitting the truth over her anger of her mother's drinking, her attempting to make amends uh, towards Kavanaugh, Tyler admitting the truth of his guilt and letting it go, and Nina reaching out for her daughter. And Kavanaugh apologizes to Kinsey and Jamal through a stupid grand gesture, getting a tattoo of their love. In the caves, Bodhi discovers the corpse of his original body. No, Dodge discovers the corpse of his original body, and he makes his as he makes his way to the Omega door. Eagle-eyed readers might notice one of the miniaturized Aaron Voss thoughts enter the panel, which is going to come into play. Issue two from the Wikipedia: Rufus and Mister Gibbs come by Key House to say goodbye to Bodie and Kinsey. When entering the house, Rufus enters the ghostly spirit of Bodie, encounters the ghostly spirit of Bodie. While Bodhi tries to warn Rufus of being discreet, he immediately starts attacking the possessed Bodhi. He is taken to McClellan Psychiatric Hospital where he meets Aaron Voss. He gets instructions from his toy on how to break out and escape. Meanwhile, Dodge plans a trap. My review. Rufus comes to say goodbye, and when he's in Key House, Bodhi's ghost manages to fill him in. We think for a second that Brutus will be able to swing this back in the favor of the good guys, but rather than informing Tyler or Kinsey, Rufus just snaps and attacks the creature that had killed his mother. As a result, he's brought to the same psychiatric facility where Aaron Voss calls home, and things are starting to come together. We learn that Nina is 30 days sober, and she and Tyler have an incredibly sweet moment together. Hill is making a conscious decision to pepper these incredibly sweet moments throughout the book rather than just give us bleak moments of Dodge getting closer and closer to his victory. In the psychiatric hospital, Rufus plans his escape when talking to his robot. While in the hallway, he meets Aaron Voss, who urges, his, who urges, his, urges him on to stop Dodge. Rodriguez does wonders in presenting the psychiatric hospital through Rufus's eyes with dinosaur soldiers patrolling the grounds. It's so fun to read. Again, Hill balances the dreadful with the tender. In this case, we move from Rufus's precarious situation to a sweet brother-sister moment between Tyler and Kinsey. And back with Rufus, he remembers his times with Zach, specifically the times in which he witnessed the brutal assaults and rapes upon Ellie. And still... Hill doesn't dwell in it. Perhaps to show Rufus's optimism, Hill quickly provides a happy memory with Ellie on the beach. At the lock house, Jamal, Scott, and Jackie arrive. And as the issue concludes with Rufus's big escape from the institution, with an assist by Aaron, who knocks over the nurse that allows Rufus to get out, the issue concludes with the world through Rufus's eyes. Danger and murderous giant robots. It's a great way to show his perspective and his bravery. If this is how he sees the world, he's the most heroic person on the face of this earth. 
and his robot, who is his dream world, and his dream world is Ellie in disguise, is either the ghost of his mother or his brain's way to use the memory of his mother and what she represented to aid him in his escape. Either way, having um, having Aaron and then Ellie help Rufus escape shows that the forces of destiny, or for longtime Stephen King readers, Ka, if you can it, is drawing the forces of the white to combat the creatures of darkness. Issue three, from Wiki. The possessed Bodhi reveals himself to Nina, but uses the shadows to force her to drink alcohol. Kinsey is angry when she finds her mom drunk and decides to go with her friends to the party at the cave. Tyler and his uncle talk in the garage about Rendell and dating. When Ty leaves, the shadows attack Duncan. Ty hooks up with Jordan and they both decide to join the cave party. However, Tyler needs to get another shirt, so he goes back towards his uncle. There he is also attacked by the shadows. My review. We begin with Nina drifting off in her chair, visited by the ghost of Bodhi. It's played on a comedic beat, but it's still really sad when you look at what's occurring. A young boy desperately trying to get his mother to see him, and the anguish he must feel when she can't. She awakens to find her possessed son's body in full-on evil mode. Dodge has taken off the brakes and he's flying down the hill at 100 miles an hour with a wicked grin on his face. He doesn't care who gets in his way. He's done playing games or pretending to be Bodie Locke. M-O-O-N, that spells Dodge. What Dodge does is obscene. It's truly evil. Um, this is a hard scene to watch. Through Nina's eyes... Her son sets evil shadows on her to rip up her clothing and force wine down her throat. It's a very, very upsetting scene, and this poor woman has now been violated by this monster in two different ways on two different occasions. I'm not comfortable with what Hill does to Nina in this series. I wonder if it's a bit much to not only subjugate the woman through hell not once, but twice. The murder of her husband's one thing, but rape on top of it is a shade too exploitative. And to conclude the series with a second violation is asking a lot of the reader. As in the previous issue, Hill balances the horror with the mundane and relishes in the beauty of the mundane with Tyler musing on how much he knew his father in the 17 years they spent together and Duncan providing advice and a sounding board. Through the conversation, we get to the heart of what this story is. That all of the supernatural conflict and magic is simply a metaphor for the tragedy that had befallen a young man and its legacy as he aged into a father. It's about, as Duncan says, the demons that Rendell had and how he kept them under lock and key. And by keeping them a secret, by not opening it up to his quartet, he made himself vulnerable and was punished for it in the end. And Duncan speaks the truth when he says that Rendell simply wanted to suffer through his own secrets so his children could be unburdened by them, which of course backfired spectacularly. Duncan plays the role of the cool uncle perfectly and encourages him to go to the dance. And as Tyler leaves, we see the shadows slinking towards him. With the end in sight, there's no guarantee that any of our good guys will make it out alive. And characters like Duncan are especially vulnerable. After all, he's the last one standing of the Keeper of the Keys. Life hasn't turned out so good for the rest of them, so every page that progresses with Duncan feels like a guillotine over our heads. At the prom, Kavanaugh redeems himself a little bit in my eyes. Look, I don't like this guy. I don't know if, if you're supposed to like Kavanaugh. I just flat out don't like this character. I find him obnoxious. I find him... Uh, I, I don't... 
Culture has shifted in, in the time, even in the time that this has concluded, which was what, 2013, six years? So, I don't know. This particular character, I don't remember liking him that much in, in when I was reading this book the first time around, but he just looks even worse now. He's just so screaming for attention, so over the top. It, and it's not, not... Um, unauthentic to high school life i mean i think we all we all know in a kavanaugh um but i, I don't know i i just I, f I feel as though hill celebrates the character in a way that just rubs me the wrong way i i just i don't i don't like kavanaugh i just don't like i don't like this character um but he redeems himself a little bit in my eyes it's a stupid bit but it, it it's fun um, it allows Hill to openly pay tribute to his father in a way that's natural to the story and organic to his characters. Kavanaugh takes the stage before the microphone to thank everyone, acting as if he's the prom queen. Backstage, Jamal does the deed that we all know is going to happen and pulls the rope, causing a bucket of blood to pour over Kavanaugh. It's a wonderful way to acknowledge Carrie while staying true to who Kavanaugh is, obnoxious and attentive-seeking. So I will say that it is it is a fun beat, and it, it, it does elicit a genuine chuckle. Outside the prom, Tyler and Jordan have a nice moment together. She's been um, looming large in his mind, even though she's been noticeably absent for a while. She justifies her cheating while apologizing, stating that he was falling in love, and in Hill's words, falling in love in high school is thinking you can fly a 747 because you can fly a kite. She knew she'd wind up hurting him and didn't want to add to his pain. The two of them find closure together, and I'm not sure how I feel about any of this. I think Hill knocks us out of the ballpark, but I never felt that Jordan functioned as an actual character um, who ever rose above her own variation of the manic pixie dream girl archetype. We know that she's rich and she's angry at her dad, but beyond that, we don't know anything about her. I, and I don't know, maybe that's the point, because she as a character exists only through Tyler's eyes, so it's not as if he knows her at all either. It works in that sense. It does. And if that's the case, okay, that works. But I feel that, that, that Hill could have done more with that. And also, knowing what he wound up writing um, or publishing after Lock and Key and the years after Lock and Key, I, I believe that he used Jordan as a prototype for Vic the main character of Nosferatu, a damaged, chain-smoking, badass, beautiful biker with daddy issues. To cement the Nosferatu, the very next scene begins with a car that I'm pretty sure is a Wraith, which was Charlie Manx's ride of choice, whose license plate functions as the book's title. This issue came up before the publication of Nosferatu, but he would have been finishing it up at this point, so his creative endeavors definitely overlapped here a bit, and I, I think that there is a... Um, I think that you can see the the the, the birth and 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 the, the progression of 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 Vic um, through through Jordan here. Now the the Wraith is driven by Kavanaugh, who is there to drop uh, Kinsey and Jackie off per Nina's request. But Kinsey finds the the drunken Nina on the floor and thinks only that Mom fell off the wagon. She tells her that she hates her and decides to go with Jamal and Kavanaugh to the caves. The dark design of Dodge is truly offensive. Tyler and Jordan have a beautiful goodbye and plan to meet at the drowning cave. 
But when Tyler returns to the key house, he is promptly attacked by the shadows. Issue 4 from Wikipedia. Half-drunk Nina is able to sense her ghost son and calls Mutuku. Meanwhile, the possessed Bodhi enters the party at the cave and lures the kids down below. Kinsey and Jamal are suspicious, but Bodhi Dodge breaks character and uses the shadows to take control of the situation. Meanwhile, Ty and Dunk fight shadows with light and head towards the key house, just as Detective Mutaku arrives. In a tense situation, another police officer tries to shoot at the shadow, but he hits Tyler instead. Review. It's heartbreaking and incredibly tense to see Nina this way. Broken, drunk, barely able to form words, and unable to reach the cordless phone. In her inebriated state, she can see Bodhi, but she chalks him up to her drunkenness. In the garage, Duncan makes the save and brings Tyler into the trunk with his garage light. For the moment, they're safe from the shadows, and the trucker and the uncle explains... And in the trunk, he, exp he explains... Um, the man explains what the boy had known for himself. And here, Hill does what King had done with it, with it, and make it seem that all of this magic is what all of us had experienced as children, but had been made to forget along the way. Hill keeps the scene light, with banter between uncle and nephew concluding with one of the shadows literally pulling the plug. Meanwhile, Jordan Gates has arrived to the drowning cave where the after-party has begun. Everything begins as an after-party prom should, but it quickly spins off the rails with Bodhi showing up and luring them to danger with a story that isn't adding up to anyone. And the more they press Bodhi, he finally shrugs and goes full dodge, unleashing the crown of shadows. The entire story begins to come full circle as the scene with Rufus on the bus is a mirror to the scene with Sam on the bus, right down to the passenger with child acknowledging his existence, except this is a redemption of the earlier scene. And just as the shadows begin to overtake the seniors, Rufus and his robot march down to the Emperor, down the Emperor Street to Lovecraft. Wondering how Rufus will factor into this conclusion is an incredibly thrilling wild card. Back at the lockhouse, Nina is assisted by the ghost of Bodhi, and in a kingism, Hill plays with the concept of being dim, as Nina can only see Bodhi out of the corner of her eye. And it's so sweet how this little ghost boy is helping his mother, telling her what she's doing is all on her own. She manages to get to the phone, and she calls Daniel. In the garage, Tyler and Duncan fight off the shadows, but things spin wildly out of control as when the police show up and shoot at an incoming shadow, Tyler is the recipient of the bullet, and in the caves, Kavanaugh throws himself off the catwalk to join Jackie, who seemingly had died in the attack. Jordan, our memory still fresh from her senior video about selflessness, steps up to the plate and begins blasting the shadows with a makeshift blowtorch. But our heroes aren't given much leeway as the remaining seniors attempt to escape and are blocked by the shadows who bring the cave entrance down. I should note here that Rodriguez has been nailing it. Throughout the series, he's played with the rising crescent moon in the background and the final panel of that famous shot of the drowning cave, with the waves crashing against the stairs and the moon over the cliff. It's truly haunting. Unfortunately, with comic book schedules and deadlines, sometimes what happens is artists just don't have the time to spend on their work. Um, the deadlines can just cause an artist to suffer at times. Now with Rodriguez... Uh, which we are very, very fortunate of because uh, he's almost as if he's saving the best for last here. 
Issue five. In the cave, there's no Wikipedia for this one. Uh, in the cave, Kinsey, Jamal, and Jordan face off against the shadows. Things are bad, like really bad, as Dodge begins marching the seniors towards the Omega door and begins killing any dissenters. Elsewhere, Tyler writhes on the ground with a gunshot. As the shadows descend on Tyler, Duncan makes the save. <clears throat> Strapped with so many lights, he looks like a luminescent cable out of a classic issue of Rob Liefeld's X-Force run. Once in the house, Nina knows that she can fix this with one of the keys. And in the caves, just when you think things are getting too awful, Hill eases off and then reintroduces some of the memories of Aaron Voss to Jordan's very politically incorrect but nevertheless funny dismay. This is immediately followed by the return of Scott and Jackie, Scott wearing the amulet of strength and Jackie wearing the wings. However, what might seem hopeful at first is dashed against the rocks as it's quickly established that Scott and Jackie have been infected by the soul parasites of the Omega door. And once Nina puts Tyler in the cabinet to fix him, Hill gives us a swerve and provides the supernatural reunion between Rendell and Tyler. And Hill plays it wonderfully, not exactly as you'd expect. You might have thought that we'd get an emotional payoff, um, a big declaration of love, a release, an apology, but instead we get truth. A son angry at the father having to clean up the, fa the father's mess and a proud father who kisses him and tells him that a key turns both ways encouraging him to do what he himself could not. And in the cave, Dodge's minions tell Kinsey, Scott, and Jordan that they have to choose who will walk through the door, who will be a servant, and who will die. And following a beautiful conversation with Kinsey, Jordan sacrifices herself. Okay, that was the cliffhanger. And I don't know the time frame between when uh, Alpha, I'm sorry, Omega concluded and Alpha started. I think there was a pretty big gap there. And I don't remember it. I don't remember how long it took. Um, at that time, at that time, I, I was engaged. My wife and I, we were engaged. And so there was a lot of time between the engagement and the wedding, just spent on wedding planning, and it was just exciting. So I, I time, life flew by really, really quickly back then. So I don't remember having to wait very long. I do remember reading uh, um, Omega when that came out, leading up to my wedding day, actually. Uh, so that I have really, really strong, fond memories of, of, of this era of the book personally. Um, but I, I do remember that there was a gap. I just don't know how long it was. So alpha number one, things aren't much better than when we had left off in the previous issue as Daniel is brutally murdered by the shadows and worse, his body accidentally sent a fire by Nina in the caves. Jamal and Kinsey are dragged through a shadowy hell of Dodge's making. And with him in full control, we see how monstrous he truly is. The seniors are strung from the wall, some with their eyes gout, gouged out some dead Kinsey and Jamal are paraded before Dodge who answers Kinsey's questions of why he's not using the seniors for vessels it's because he doesn't want an army he wants more keys he plans on using the key head the, the head keys to hold sway over his victims and grow an army he can control while forging new terrible keys that will turn him into a god it's over the top yet it's fully believable for this character at the lock house Tyler is forging one last key just as Rufus arrives and is saved from the shadows by Nina. He ventures into the cave to confront Dodge and, 
Unimpressed with the villain's monologuing, he informs him he's not there to stop him but to save him. And when the thoughts of Aaron Voss manage to get the keys and the crown from Dodge, Tyler uses his secret weapon, his new key to unlock the demon within Scott, who begins bleeding metal through his eyes. He should be dead, but he's protected by the Hercules key. Dodge escapes, and in his panic, and in his panic, as the Locke family draws around him, he doesn't notice Rufus, who has emerged like a wrathful angel. He picks up Bodie and carries him through the wellhouse door. The malignant spirit of Dodge flies out and dissipates. Scott brings Jamal, Kinsey, and Jackie to the surface and turns the key, freeing her soul but killing her in the process. They die in each other's arms while the key house burns and Nina mourns over what appears to be the death of her son. Issue 2. With the action and the conflict over, it's time to say goodbye. The issue begins as a mirror to the first arc when we met Tyler waiting in the hallway after his father's murder. The same images play out again, except this time the family is stronger unit and is able to weather the unbearable tragedy of the loss of Bodhi. It's tragic, but it's not going to break them. Nina and Kinsey fully make up. With both their faults in the past, they are both able to be themselves and love each other in this time of need. Tyler heads to the ruins of the key house to summon the Echo of Dodge, who he has come to save with his key. What follows is a beautiful conversation between the two friends and the son um, and the best friend of the father. And what happens is that Hill gives an incredible description of death that I think about a lot. Not that I think about death a lot, but I think about this description. According to Dodge, when dead, there's a sound, a golden sound, a bright sound with tiny flecks of music drifting within it like motes of dust. And you just know if you let that sound get inside you, if you hummed along with it, You'd rest like a cat in the sun, a perfect rest. You could rest for a billion years. That is so comforting and beautiful. With the spirit of Dodge peacefully laid to rest, the next stop is for Tyler and Kinsey to return the memories to Aaron Voss. I did not see this coming. I thought this was a beautiful, triumphant moment. From there, Bodhi returns in another beautiful moment, and watching the miracle wash over the family is a wonder. But it's all warm up for the final moment as Tyler summons his father in the well house to say goodbye and apologize for his anger and blame. It's very sweet with Rendell saying everything that you would ever want your father to say to you. He's declined a second life and when they walk together in the sun, his ghost dissolves and with it, Tyler Locke is his own man ready to embrace the future rather than be weighed down with the chains of the past. Um... I have long said that one of Joe Hill's strengths is his ability to end a story. Uh, some storytellers fizzle, not Joe Hill. He keeps he's able to escalate and escalate and escalate. And then when it comes time to actually conclude, um, he really does he sticks the landing nearly every time. It is he is able to give us satisfaction. He's able to give us thrills. But the, the ending, ending, the actual ending, the last thing you read before the final sentence is always beautiful um, or scary, whatever his intent is. Like he manages to pull it off. Uh, and in this, it is, it's just beautiful. It's beautiful. It, it wraps it all up and it, it makes you say, yes, 
this was important. This was good. This was something worth reading. Uh, so guys, that's it. This is my this has been my review of uh, Lock and Key by Joe Hill and Gabriel Rodriguez. I love it. I love it, and you should too. If you've just been listening to this because you've had uh, the Stephen King cast in your feed, then um, and you haven't read Lock and Key, you should do yourself a favor and and, and go out. Go. Out. I'm sorry. I just I thought I heard something. Um, no, you should go out. You should listen to, uh, you know, you should go out and, and, and buy the books at, at a local comic book store, at your local um, bookstore, or, you know, you can you can download them onto your, your phone. Uh, but they're definitely worth reading. So, guys, I just want to say uh, for everyone that, that wrote in uh, after the last episode uh, with your sympathies and your thoughts, I, I really appreciate it. Um, for those of you who don't know, I... My, my, one of my dogs recently passed away. And for anyone that's ever owned an animal and had to go through that, no, you just know that it's awful. It's a terrible thing. Uh, so like just hearing from all of you, that that really meant something. So thank you. Um, in some way, it, it makes me happy to know that uh, Sonny, you know, he was a part of your lives as well. He was a good boy. And also something that's pretty crazy is that we surpassed our uh, our fifth anniversary together. I was going to do like a retrospective look and I still might do it. I just didn't have time to do it this this summer and, and release it on the, the, the fifth anniversary itself. Um, but that's crazy to me that this has been going on for five years. I'll, I'll save my more thoughts until I'm able to actually get together a fifth anniversary um, podcast. Um, but I'd like to just kind of give what I find, what I think my five best episodes are or my five best intros or, or whatever and just... Um, just some some accomplishments that I think that uh, the Stephen King cast has achieved. I'd, I'd like to be able to, to do that. So um, thank you, everybody, that have been listening since day one. Uh, thank you for, for joining me on this ride. I look forward to spending another five years together. I know that my publication has slowed down um, over the last year or so. Uh, I, I do apologize. Um, but, uh, but I'm still around. I'm still doing it. I'm still recording. And uh, we got some good stuff coming up this fall, like I've talked about already. So uh, keep subscribing. And if you have uh, some time on your hands, head on over to iTunes and leave a review uh, because that could greatly help me out. And also, you can always write into Stephen Kingcast at yahoo.com to share all of your Stephen King thoughts. So, guys, that's all I got now. I don't know what's up next. Maybe the next review, um, the next episode you get will be my review of It Chapter 2. In the meantime, you can always check out all of my thoughts on It. My uh, three and a half point, my three and a half episode review. So, was it three episodes? With the bonus episode for uh, the book It, there's my two-part review of the the It miniseries, my two-part review of the 2017 uh, It chapter one that came out. So there's a lot of there's a lot of It content out there uh, for you guys to listen to. So um, you can definitely do that to tide us over until next week uh, when Bill Skarsgård uh, steps back into the role as Pennywise, a dancing clown, to face off against an adult grouping of the losers so that's all i got this week guys um in the meantime may you have long days and pleasant nights and i'll see you here next time where m-o-o-n spells stephen king cast